Yeah, baby. Wonder if all my bad decisions get accounted in the algorithms. No statistician could dissuade me from my bigger vision. I know my occupation's quite an unlikely place in this world to occupy and talk about upon a daily basis. Our information's predetermined by some biased business. We all in sermon to silicon that push up lovely neighbors. I'm done with paper chasing, think I'm on the bigger banquets. Miss that full circle, new wave, energy on a Tuesday. Turn a blue day to a bright hue, yellow with a smooth day in here. Extra fruité, the brain. You can't move. Ooh, Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. Welcome back to another Friday Night Live. Welcome back to another podcast. I- I'll tell you guys right now. And Gene, I, Gene, I forgot to ask you this because I don't want to say your last name wrong. How do you say your last name, Gene? Gilliland. Gilliland. I like that. That is a, that is a strong. That's a that's a good name. I like that. Gilliland. That sounds almost like like an author. Like you would like you would like have wrote a series of of, of books like Lord of the Rings or something. I like that. But anyway. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, back on another podcast, and I'm very excited because tonight I'm joined by probably one of the coolest guys that's ever reached out to me that wanted to come on the podcast and wanted to talk. And when when he reached out, I was like, oh, this is this is like right up my alley of what Alex Rudd loves to talk about on the podcast. And, and like I said, Gene, in the green room before we started, this is like the hill that, that, you know, there's not very many hills I'm willing to die on, but conser- conservation and conserving bass and conserving our waters is one of them. And so I'm glad that you're here. But uh, without further ado, Mr. Gene Gilliland, there you go, hopefully I said it right, the conservation director for BASS and just all around awesome human. Gene, kind of introduce yourself, tell people about your you have a list of accolades that we could probably go a whole podcast just on that, but tell everybody kind of who you are and, and where you come from and, and what your deal is in the fishing world. Well, as you said, I'm the National Conservation Director for Bass Angler Sportsman Society, BASS. I took that position um, about nine years ago now after retiring from the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation, where I was a black bass and a fisheries biologist for over 30 years. Uh, I spent my career with the state uh, researching Florida bass. Uh, In particular, I spent like 15 years. I started our genetics program here in Oklahoma, uh, stocking evaluations. And then I got into a a lot of bass tournament research uh, in the early to mid 90s uh, and going into the late 90s, actually, did a lot of research on the impacts of bass tournaments on bass populations and uh, displacement of fish after they were released. And a lot of it was focused on uh, bass mortality and what can we do to reduce that, to maximize the survival of those fish. Mm-hmm. And that that uh, resulted in, in a collaboration with uh, Dr. Hal Schramm, who was a professor at Mississippi State University. And we wrote a little booklet called Keeping Bass Alive that BASS published in 2002. And that little booklet kind of became the Bass Care Bible for bass tournaments. And, and a lot of what we uh, proposed back then is still very much uh, the, the way anglers and tournament organizations uh, can can run their uh, how they do things in the boat mm-hmm. for the yeah. anglers and how the tournament organizations run away in to help uh, maximize the survival of released fish mm-hmm. and that whole research 
projects that I did back then got me connected with BASS. And, and I started coming to the, the Bassmaster Classic and helping with Bass's protocols for tournament weigh-ins starting in about 1993. And I've, I've been to all of the classics since then. Uh, and then when I retired from the state, uh, it just the timing was just right that the person that was in my position at Bass, the conservation director, was ready to retire. And uh, I had just retired from the state, and that's when Bass hired me as the conservation director. And, and like I say, now I'm going on, uh, I'll be going on my 10th year starting, uh, I guess, probably in just a couple of months. Wow. That's a lot. That's, that, that is one heck of a career up to this point. I mean, there's not very many people that can say that they have been in a career field for 40 plus years. Like that's, that's incredible. That's, uh, that is, it, just make, it makes you an old guy is what it, it, does. it does. It does. I wasn't going to say that, but you've said it now. So it does. It makes you, yeah, and that's here, what's, not a whole lot of it up here, a little thin, but I love it. I yeah. love it. That's um, well, that's, what's really cool. I mean, it's cool to see that, 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 that there's that much passion in you for that. You know what I mean? Well, and, and I got into the whole, I got into the, I mean, I've been a bass angler since I was in like the 10 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And I started fishing tournaments when I was in junior, junior high, mm -hmm. fished them all through high school, college. Uh, and then somewhere along there in, in high school, I kind of got the biology bug mm -hmm. and I, and I, um, I wanted to try to match up my passion for the sport of bass fishing and my love for the biology. And that's what led to the career that I've had uh, for the past 40 years. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm still a very passionate angler. Um, I'm going tomorrow. Uh, we've got, <laughs> we've got a little window of opportunity here in Oklahoma. It's uh, they're calling for an ice storm on, on um, Monday and Tuesday, but it's supposed to be 60 degrees and light winds tomorrow. So that sounds pretty good for Oklahoma. Like I, you know, I, I, I love Oklahoma. I've been out there. I come out there and visited Edwin Evers and, and Jimmy Houston while I was out there and, one of the most beautiful states I've ever been to. Y'all have a have an amazing set of fisheries, and it's uh, it was it was cool to hang out there. But now that's that's so awesome. That's that's cool to hear. You know, that's one thing I always ask people. Like, you know, in in the industry in which we both work, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have extreme passion for fishing. And I always ask people, like, you know, if we all went away tomorrow, you know, the jobs, the sponsors, the you know, whatever it is, what would you be doing on Saturday morning? And and the people like you that say. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to get after it. Those are the people mm -hmm. that I love because those are the people that have the passion, the kind of passion that I love to see for bass fishing and just for the outdoors in general. But again, I'm, I'm so glad you're on here. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. I got some, I've actually wrote, actually wrote something down for this one. Like I'll tell you right now, normally I am shoot from uh -oh. the hip. Better get my notebook. Out. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I'm normally <laughs> shoot for the hip, but I actually wrote down some questions that I want to ask you. And I'm super excited to just wade into all this. And like I told you in the green room, go down every little rabbit hole that we can go down with conservation. And I definitely want to talk about one thing that sparked my ear as soon as you said it was the fish displacement thing. That is something that it's an idea mm -hmm. I've been exploring and reading about a whole, whole lot. And I want to get into that. But before we get into that, I just want to tell all you guys that's listening, um, not only on podcast form, but on, on the live form as well. Just want to thank you guys. A uh, week before last, we had Epic Eric on the podcast. And in the last 10 minutes of the podcast, Eric whipped up a little 
gift package to raffle off, and we raised $1,000 in 10 minutes um, to donate to the Punt Foundation. And so I just wanted to let you guys know that that, that, that uh, donation has been made. Tomorrow there will be a post going up on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube community chat with the receipt for where the uh, donation was made. But because of you guys and your generosity, we were able to raise $1,000 for pediatric cancer. So that's really, really cool. So I just want to thank you guys for that. Um, it really like, I almost got a little choked up today, just making the donation because it's just so cool that in 10 minutes we were able to do that. And that's a thousand dollars. that's going to go to help transform somebody's life while their child is battling pediatric cancer. And so, uh, near and dear to my heart, but I do appreciate you guys, but without further ado and not to get all sappy and, and, and start crying on anybody here, let's get into some conservation talk. So let's kind of wade into this idea first of like the, the bass displacement, um, Okay. I find it very interesting, you know, and it's something that in my mind, I feel like may affect the perception of anglers and how they perceive the way and the health of a, of a body of water, you know? Oh, yes. Um, you know, one thing that I've definitely experienced in my fishing is areas of the lake that just don't seem to fish like they used to. And I think a lot of that, in my experience, made this anecdotal to me, or made there may be some data to back this up that that you know when an area gets fished heavily, or there may be a certain amount of fish that live in an area, can you displace those fish to an amount or in a way that they may not replace like they used to, or there may not be an age class or size class of a fish living in an area that would make it seem as though the health of the fishery is declining. So Gene is about to get into some really juicy stuff about moving fish. And, you know, moving fish is a thing that we as anglers do. And to move fish, you got to have a live well. And to have a live well that functions properly, you got to have batteries that work well, as well as all the other things that we put on our boat, whether it be all these electronics, forward-facing sonar, 360, raptors, whatever it is, we have so many demands in our boats and even in our kayaks nowadays that you got to have the right battery. And if you're looking for the right battery for your battery needs, you need to check out X2 Power Batteries. X2 is making the best in AGM and lithium batteries in the marine world. If you're looking to power your boat, repower your boat, or power your kayak, you need to check out X2 batteries. I myself am running three AGMs in my boat that runs three Humminbird Graphs, an Ultrex, a set of Raptors, all my starting capabilities, lights. I even charge GoPros off of my batteries, and I've never had a single issue. I've got all the power that I need for even the longest 12 to 13 hour day. And then in my kayak, I'm actually running a little 20 amp hour lithium that runs my nine inch Helix Humminbird Graph. And again, Going out on the water 8, 9, 10, 11 hours a day, never had an issue with power. X2, again, is making the best batteries that I have personally ever used. And ever since I switched to X2, it's just been phenomenal, my experience with powering my boat and powering my kayak. So if that sounds like something's going to bring some value to your life, if you're looking to repower your boat, repower your kayak, go to x2power.com and check out all the battery options that they have. If you've got any specific questions, you can go to a Batteries Plus store near you or give them a call and they're going to help you out. And if you want to give even more specific, shoot me a message. I'll help to try to answer some of those questions as well. But like I said, go check out x2powerbatteries.com or go to your local Batteries Plus near you to check out X2 Power Batteries. And now without further ado, let's get into the juicy, juicy with Gene on whether moving fish around the lake or not have an effect on the fishery. The the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, or maybe it's probably even better. 
nature, uh, there, there's a saying, I'm trying to remember how it goes. Nature abhors a vacuum. Okay. Okay. If you have an area of the lake that is productive mm-hmm. and the anglers go there because it's productive, they catch fish and those fish are removed, whether it's for tournaments or whether if they're harvested, mm-hmm. think about crappie or walleye or whatever. Um, hardly anybody harvests bass anymore, but those fish are removed. Nature says, okay, the fishbowl can hold so many pounds of fish in this area. Mm-hmm. And now you take some out, something replaces that. Mm. Generally, what happens is the fish that are already living there and the new ones that get spawned the following spring grow up and fill that void that's been created by the fish being taken out. Mm -hmm. So if you think about areas that are routinely fished, Mm -hmm. something's replenishing those fish. Mm -hmm. If people are going there year after year because it's a good spot, Mm -hmm. something is replenishing those fish if those fish are being moved out from from tournament standpoint. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a situation where the lake is not as productive Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether it's water levels or environmental conditions have a a much bigger play in this than, than people do really, Mm -hmm. that, that can have an impact on the size structure of the population. Mm -hmm. Think, think of the, think of the bass population as a, as a pyramid. Okay. There's a lot of fish down here at the bottom of the pyramid. And as you go up to the top where the big ones are, there's not as many. Mm -hmm. If you constantly crop off the top of the pyramid, Mm -hmm. you still got lots of fish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just, they take a while for them to grow up to replace those ones that are being removed. Mm -hmm. But nature is constantly going to try to replenish those ones that are being harvested. Mm -hmm. The other part of that is migration. There have been studies that show that, in fact, we we did one back in 1993, 94. We worked with a... I was born. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I got to make uh, you feel old. Sorry, that was just a jab there. Go ahead. We worked with a, a, a tournament group out here at a lake near nearby that, mm-hmm. that had a Wednesday night jackpot every Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. And we tagged all the fish that came into that tournament and then tracked those fish uh, by where they were caught again mm-hmm. to find out. Uh, we asked the anglers when they came in where they caught their fish. We were had to be kind of secretive about that because nobody wanted to give away their secret spots. Yeah. But we we were able to get a pretty good idea of what part of the lake they were in. Yeah. And then we, we looked to see if any of those fish went home, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we found that about 40% of those fish wound up going back within a, a fairly short distance of where they were caught. Mm-hmm. 60% of those fish didn't, they went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So what we've seen and uh, been studies done a number of times across the country where sometimes with radio transmitters, sometimes with, with regular tags mm-hmm. that 
fish that get released at a certain area, again, it's that, that kind of carrying capacity thing. The fish bowl in that area can only hold so many fish. Mm-hmm. Well, if you keep dumping fish in there week after week, mm-hmm. something's got to get. Mm-hmm. Those fish will start to move out. Mm-hmm. Some of them mm-hmm. will find a new home fairly close because they've got the food, the habitat, every, everything they need to live. Mm-hmm. But at some point, that that kind of gets saturated Mm -hmm. and those fish will start to move out and migrate across and up and down. Uh, They may not ever go back exactly where they came from, Mm -hmm. but they may go many, many miles until they find a place that they call home Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to give you an example, we had some fish that, that went seven miles in two days. But if you think about it, uh, you know, a, a, a casual walking speed is three miles an hour. Yeah. Well, fish can swim that fast. Yeah. So yeah. going seven miles is really not that big a deal for a bass. Yeah. If if they decide they want to take a hike, they will. Yeah. And they can, they can move back into some of those areas. And so, you know, if you catch a bass on one end of uh, Watts Bar, and you take it to the other end of Watts Bar, 20 miles away, mm-hmm. it's it's unlikely that that fish is going to go home. Exactly, yeah. But it will find another place to to set up camp and, mm-hmm. and continue its life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other fish will either grow up to fill the void where that one left mm-hmm. or move mm-hmm. in from other areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of why you see some of these areas that are that are productive over and over and over because there's there's that constant uh, either fish growing up or moving into the area mm-hmm. so, if you have a really unproductive lake that has a very small or uh, poor bass population mm-hmm. that's a little different animal there yeah because then the, the growth of fish to be able to grow up, to fill that void, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for a, for a 12 incher to grow up, to be a keeper size fish, it's going to take a little longer because of the infertility, lack of forage, that sort of thing. And, and so in those kind of situations, you're more likely to see some, some problems with, mm-hmm. with areas being thinned out. Yeah. And if, yeah. if you have environmental conditions, mm-hmm that uh, provide for poor spawns or poor recruitment, we call it, growing up. You know, recruitment's when a bass gets to his first birthday. Yeah. So if they, you know, if, if for whatever reason, the water levels or something's going on that, that provides uh, for a poor year class, that will show up then from the angler's perspective, usually two or three or four years later, depends on how long it takes those fish to normally to grow up to be a keeper size fish, you know, 14, 15 inches. Generally that's about three years. Yeah. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of going on with the the dynamics of the population mm-hmm. that, and, and tournament angling and displacement is, is a, a little piece of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it. In, so one thing in my my experience, and I, and I wanted to ask you about this, about the displacement is, you know, obviously you remove 
an apex predator like a largemouth or a smallmouth, right? That's a, I mean, in, in most lakes, you know, you in, in some of my lakes, and this is kind of where this question is going to lead to, you have other apex predators like, you know, big stripers, big muskies. And mm-hmm. like, you know, whether it's, whether it's natural bass mortality, whether it's, you know, tournament pressure, whether it's just general angling and people moving fish around, you know, cause some people just throw fish in live wells just to take pictures of them or whatever. Is there any concern on certain bodies of water or have you guys seen in your years of, of studying, you know, lakes, like the microbiome that is maybe a portion of a lake or a Creek or whatever. Is there ever a worry that there's like a collapse that we, you can take so many bass out that like another predominant predator, like a muskie will move in because that's something anecdotally again, that I've experienced where there's a certain portion going to, to Watts bar Lake. Watts bar now has muskies in it for people that don't know that big ones at that, like giant ones that I've seen where there's areas where I used to catch a ton of bass where it seems like, now I just have giant muskies that follow my chatter baits and my jigs back to the boat. And it's like the, it's like the bass have either migrated or been taken out of there. And I say taken out of there because, you know, I physically with my eyes seen guys come at there, you know, catch a limit of bass and then drive them back down to, you know, 30 miles down the lake for a tournament. And so it's like, I see that piece, but then I also wonder if there's another piece where like, is there a bass migration or a movement to get away from these other apex predators? Like do bass get pressured by other big fish and just move away? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Very, very much so. Um, I'll give you an example here at home. We started stocking sawgai, which are the cross between walleye and sauger in, in a number of lakes in Oklahoma back in the, uh, the nineties. Mm-hmm. And when those fish matured and got up around 18, 19, 20 inches long, mm-hmm. we started hearing a lot of complaints from the bass anglers that I can't catch bass anymore because now I go to my favorite spots and all I catch are sawgai. Mm-hmm. The bass were still in the lake. Mm-hmm. They were just living somewhere else. Yeah. They had yeah. changed their behavior. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've seen that uh, another closer to home example for y'all is Kentucky Lake. When the Asian carp, the, the invasive carp population really started to explode, a lot of the, the ledge fishing kind of went away because the carp basically – I mean, we're talking big fish. Yeah. They're they're yeah. not necessarily the same kind of predator that you're talking about with muskie. Yeah. But they move into those areas that are high density plankton, the things that they feed on, mm-hmm. and basically displace a lot of the the native game fish that that had been living in those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the, the electrofishing results from Kentucky Department of Wildlife or TWRA. Uh, a, a lot of the bass are still there. Mm-hmm. They're just living in different places in terms of the the, the population itself, the, the pounds of fish, the numbers of fish. Now, again, like I said a minute ago, those populations go up and down mm-hmm. because of all sorts of variations that environmental conditions are causing. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, there is no flat line yeah. on a yeah. bass population. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe in a small farm pond that, that can be really – really well managed yeah. but in in the reservoirs that we deal with that most of our bass fishing goes on in where floods or droughts or vegetation or no vegetation or 
invasive species, all those kind of things can have a huge impact on where the fish live mm -hmm. and whether or not we have continuously strong year classes. Mm -hmm. And and there's going to be a whole lot of that that fluctuation. Mm -hmm. And and to to your point about kind of the micro uh, aspect of that, mm -hmm. that can happen within a, a major arm of a lake mm -hmm. or a, an embayment. Yeah. You know, bass, bass typically don't have a really, really big home range, mm -hmm. unlike stripers or hybrids that, that are very much roaming species. They're very pelagic. They cruise all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. bass, bass tend to have a much smaller home range mm -hmm. and spend most of their life within a fairly confined area. And I, that may be several miles, but it's still, you know, it might be a major creek arm or a bay or something like that. Mm -hmm. Smallmouth mm -hmm. tend to be a little more of a roamer. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the the river nature coming out in them, mm -hmm. uh, that, that they tend to have a much bigger home range and will move a lot further mm -hmm. uh, than, than largemouth do. But to your point with the muskie, um, you know, any of those fish like that, that, that come in and take up residence mm -hmm. potentially could displace the bass. Now, you know, whether or not that's all of the picture, uh, you know, it's hard to say. Now, the, the tournament removal mm -hmm. may be a part of that, mm -hmm. but I think the competition factor that you might see with, with those other big predators uh, is probably even a bigger factor. I think in some lakes it might be blue catfish, mm -hmm. which are are very predatory. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be musky, it might be walleye, sawgye, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, so, it, yeah. It, and you would have to you would have to think that uh, that you know, a, a, a whatever it is, maybe it's a big part of the lake, a small part of the lake. You know, like the the biomass can only be so much and especially like right. when you start getting 50 inch musky into an area i mean just right. the amount of room that a 50 inch musky needs to you know do its thing is a lot bigger than even a five pound bass needs to do its thing you know and, and sure. doing its thing you know includes spawning and eating and swimming and just being a fish and so yeah, yeah that's that's a very interesting it's, it's an interesting idea I, I think that it's one thing that you know when i first kind of started diving into this years ago, it was like, you know, it has to be fishing pressure and fishing pressure only. And then I started to realize like that, okay, fishing pressure, like you said, it's a portion of it, but there's so many other factors that play into why bass is the way that it is or why it isn't there, or why it's there or, or whatever it may be. And, and it's just been very interesting to kind of hear you know, your perspective and perspectives from others have kind of helped me to, to really focus in on this idea of just like the displacement of fish. I think the displacement of fish is probably the single biggest driving factor as to why anglers in their anecdotal experience of fishing have seen a decline in some of their fisheries is because those fish just aren't there anymore. Whether it is that they're, they've been moved, you know, tournament angling, they've been caught and kept by people who want to eat them, just natural mortality and or something, you know, an outside factor, like an environmental factor, pushing those fish out of an area. I think that people get very caught in 
this is where the fish are at and they should be here. And then if they're not there, well, then the fishery is bad. When really and truthfully, it's just the population is is still in the lake. It's just they may have moved 10 miles down the river channel and they've taken up shop on a rock 10 miles down the river channel. And that's where they live now. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's what, you know, we're talking now about fish behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, the, what, what are those fish doing when something in their world changes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in comes the bigger predators, in comes uh, Asian carp, whatever, you know, what do they do? And a lot of times uh, what we've, what we see is the anglers are much slower to react than the bass are. Yeah. The yeah. bass, the bass decide, Hey, I'm going to live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fishermen want to keep fishing for them where they used to be. Mm-hmm. And, and the, and the, the thought is, well, they're just not here. Mm-hmm. Well, they may be here, but they're not right here. Mm-hmm. They're like you say, down the lake somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's, sometimes that takes a while for, the anglers to catch up with what's going on and where those fish have gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that, that forward facing sonar has shown a lot of people is that bass don't always live the places where we've traditionally always thought they lived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they are a little bit more um, prone to roam around mm-hmm. and chase bait. And things like that, which from an angling standpoint, makes it a whole lot harder to figure out exactly where to go to catch them. Yeah. Because they're not sitting on that rock or that stump where I've caught a bass every year for the last 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're somewhere else. Yeah. Jacob Wheeler himself said, and I heard him, it was on something the other day. He said that forward facing sonar has showed him one thing and that is that we know absolutely nothing about a bass that they do <laughs> well they well in, 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 I, yeah. I think he was he was being you know a little yeah. uh what's the word i'm looking for you know a little you know over the top with it but it's just right. Right. He, he's saying that like those bass are doing things that we as anglers could never imagine that they're actually doing sure. they're going places well, that, I, and things like that and, and we used to see that in in our survey work when we would do our electrofishing surveys there would be i i distinctly remember a few lakes where we could go to the same to a, one particular tree or bush mm-hmm. and shock up a big quality bass every year mm-hmm. in that bush mm-hmm. same exact spot and we could electrofish that same exact spot every month for the rest of the year and never see that fish again mm-hmm. that fish was in there one time of the year typically during the spawning season Mm -hmm. and then they were gone Mm -hmm. they went somewhere else Mm -hmm. where where we just we had no way of sampling those fish yeah and and so i i think that's that's kind of what's coming to light now with some of the the technology advancements is that people are realizing that there's there's always going to be some fish up there shallow yeah uh and and accessible, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. And and there'll always be some locations that tend to really hold fish. Um, but then there's another part of that population of bass that don't go by the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they're they're doing something else that 
until just very recently, we really haven't had a lot of way to shine a light on that. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think, uh, one question, and I think this is going to lead into another question, is, you know, so we as humans, okay, let me, I'm, let's, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to ask this question. And this is a question, You, you one thing that you said in your email to me that I loved was that you're doing your absolute best to just kind of dispel some of the myths around fish. And, and, you know, put it out there to, to help get rid of some of these myths. So one thing that I constantly see, and I don't know if it's a myth, if it's a truth, I don't know, but it's just a question that I or a, a, um, a statement that I see said a lot is that we as anglers only catch realistically like five to 10% of the fish. Like the, you could put a hundred guys on the lake and they're only going to catch five to 10% of the fish that they're around all day long. So by that logic, and I'm going to speak in a little bit of hyperbole here, why are we even concerned with bass conservation if if we as anglers are only ever going to really touch like 5 to 10%? Like there has to be a human driving factor as to why conservation exists. And so do you think things like tournament pressure, forward-facing sonar, you know, just excessive boat pressure on lakes, including recreational boaters. I mean, we've seen this just massive explosion of of just a lot of different boats on the water. It's more exhaust fumes. It's more oil. It's more all these just like just human pressure pushing down on these lakes. Do you think that we're having an effect on the fish? And do you think that that realistically we're only seeing five to ten percent of the fish, or do you think that we are having a an effect? And I kind of, I kind of think I know where you're going to answer this, but I, I want to hear what you have, what your thoughts yeah, on. Yeah, that you are. you know the answer is maybe. Yeah, um, <laughs> it always is maybe. <laughs> there there have been there have been a number of studies that have shown that in some bodies of water, when when they do tagging studies and reward tags and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. that a very high percentage of the bass in a lake are actually being caught and released. They did a study on Malax Lake in Minnesota where they found that a I don't remember the exact numbers but it was 70 80% of the bass in that lake had been caught at one time or another. Hmm. Smallmouth. That's crazy. <laughs> um so, you know, obviously in situations like that catch and release uh, proper handling of those fish, that sort of thing, will will have an impact on the quality of the fishing. It again, it's it's probably not going to have an impact as much on the total numbers, mm-hmm. but uh, the the larger fish, if they we know that they stress more easily and and mortality is a little higher on those fish. So, but for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot more bass out there. And again, I think the technology is kind of opening a lot of people's eyes to some of that, mm-hmm. that what what's really out there. The, the question then becomes, is it a biological problem or is it a social problem? When we started catch and release, when Ray Stagat, you know, started the, the whole catch and release movement back in the, early 70s. Back then, harvest of bass, everybody kept everything they caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, you know, we didn't have as many fishermen and as many people out there fishing, but the harvest was way up here. Mm -hmm. We had harvest rates like 40, 50, 60% Mm -hmm. of the fish that got caught went home with somebody. Mm -hmm. Now we're down here like 5%. All the creel studies that are, that are being done for the most part. Now there's, there's exceptions. Every, every lake is a little different, but in general, and I, th- I think John Hammond uh, brought this up when you guys were talking on one of your earlier podcasts, mm-hmm. the, the, the creel surveys are showing that the harvest of black bass is way down. Yeah. Okay. So then it becomes a, a question of, from the social standpoint, what's acceptable. Um, if those fish are going to die of natural causes mm-hmm. or if they're going to die because of being harvested by people, taking them home to eat them, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. if some of them die because of bass tournaments, mm-hmm. the total number of bass in the lake didn't change in all that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, again, you know, you got this, this variation up and down year classes, mm-hmm. but um, the, the, the human side of it is only a a small portion when when you think of any given year class when a when a group a a year class of bass is spawned out Mm -hmm. every year that those fish survive 20 to 40 percent of them die Mm -hmm. so you start out with you know say a thousand bass five years later you've only got a few hundred left Mm -hmm. and that's from from natural causes mm-hmm. and from man caused mortality, mm-hmm. whether it's tournaments mm-hmm. or or harvest. Mm-hmm. So, you know the 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 numbers of bass in our lakes. I I, I listen to way too many podcasts. There's <laughs> there's some people that are that are you know I'm just absolutely convinced that there's no bass left in our lakes. Yeah, uh, and yet. You look at the the data from the the state fish and wildlife agencies, where they go out and and have a, a a scientifically valid sampling protocol that they do year after year after year. And you look at that trend; mm-hmm. it's not it's not crashing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, that's you know, and and we don't. In the fishery management world, we don't manage bass populations one bass at a time. We manage the whole population. Mm-hmm. And so if if a number of bass die because of being harvested or or dying because of a tournament, mm-hmm. uh, that that's a a pretty small portion of the that overall mm-hmm. big population. Mm-hmm. And so, when it, you know, now in, in smaller bodies of water, mm-hmm. if you have intense pressure, um, there, there can be a lot of changes that go on. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of those fish can be caught, mm-hmm. uh, a very high percentage of them. Uh, they've done some pond studies where, you know, 90% of the bass get caught mm-hmm. that, that over, over a course of a year or two. Now there's, there's always seems like 
some little portion of that population that just they figure it out and avoid <laughs> being caught. Yeah. And and you know, in, in tagging studies and stuff, they've they found that there's there's always a little group that's just a whole lot smarter than the rest of them. Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. and they avoid being caught. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, in a in a great big reservoir, uh, thousands of acres. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't, we don't think that we're having a really big impact on that entire bass population. Yeah. You know, they, one of, one of my colleagues in Texas, uh, Todd Driscoll did a study on Sam Rayburn Lake several years back where they, they did lots of tagging. They gave rewards. They did creel surveys. They asked, you know, they looked to find out how many Fish were being harvested. Mm-hmm. They looked at bass tournaments. And, you know, Rayburn's got a gazillion tournaments a year. Mm-hmm. And this, it's, it reinforced some of the other studies that show that, that bass tournaments and, and harvest from people that are taking fish home to eat are just not having that big an impact on the overall bass population. Mm-hmm. That those environmental factors, those droughts, those floods, those those kind of things have a way bigger impact on on the the, the strength or health of a bass population mm-hmm. than the things that people do to them. Yeah. So, like when you look at Texas, I think Texas is a shining city on a hill for you know. Uh, really, really good conservation practice, right? And in, in, in doing, you know, above and beyond what they need to do. I mean, whether it's share Lunker program or whatever it is. So like if we as humans going back to like part of that question is, is if we as humans just don't have that much effect on bass, then why are we worried about stocking? Why are we worried about, why are we even worried about the conservation of this fish? I mean, like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be, and again, it's a little bit of hyperbole and I, I kind of think I know where you're going to answer this, but it's like, why are we even concerned if these fish are so prolific? You would think as if though the, the, pro, you know, them being as prolific as they are, we should just like be able to just stick them in there and they just, nature sets course and just goes. And like, we just can't even touch what nature's ability to reproduce is like, why, why are we concerned with it? So why are we concerned with our fisheries? Why do we even concern ourselves if these bass are so prolific? Well, we're about to get into all that with Gene. But another thing that I want to talk about and a lot of people have concerns about is, you know, what happens if, God forbid, something happens to them? What happens to their family? What happens if you get in a car accident? What happens if your boat gets messed up? How are you going to cover those expenses? One of the best ways to do that is with good insurance. If you are insured, then you are able to cover those things and protect your family and protect all of the things that you hold dear. And one of the best ways to do that, like I said, is insurance. And one of the best people to talk to about that is Matt Phillips over at First Choice Insurance. First Choice Insurance is a family-owned and operated insurance company that have been working for years to build insurance policies for people's needs without breaking the bank. Now, I have all my insurance fulfilled through First Choice, whether it's home, life, car, boat, whatever it is, I've got it all covered through First Choice. And Matt, worked closely with me to make sure that I had the policy that I need to cover what I needed, again, without 
breaking the bank. And First Choice has covered everything from A to Z, from airplanes to zoos. They have done it and they continue to do it really, really well. So if you're looking to re-up your insurance or you're looking to insure something new or you're just wanting to kind of look at all of your insurance needs and go, hey, am I overpaying for this? Give Matt Phillips a call at 573-686-2870. Again, that is Matt Phillips at First Choice Insurance at 573-686-2870, or you can check them out on Facebook. And without further ado, let's listen to what Gene has to say about just bass and the population and why are we even concerned with it? Well, let, let's go back to my pyramid, okay? Okay. If we're cropping off the top of the pyramid, mm-hmm. It may not change the numbers of bass, but it changes the size structure of the population, how many fish there are of different sizes. Yeah. So certain if there's, size and age class of fish. Yeah. yeah. If they're if there are, you know, tournaments, you, you don't fish for the little ones. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to catch the biggest ones. That's right. And and if if the mortality uh on those and, and again, the bigger ones, there's not as many. They're mm-hmm. at the top of that pyramid. Mm-hmm. If you if you crop some of those off, it takes longer for those fish to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Then then you know it, it takes a while to grow a five pounder. Mm-hmm. It takes yeah. a long time to grow a ten pounder. Yeah. And so, if we want to have more big fish, mm-hmm. we got to take care of them when they're a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they have a chance to grow up to be big fish because mm-hmm. it takes time. Mm-hmm. And so. To, to your point, though, the, the social issues, it the catch and release mentality has caught on so strongly over the past 40 years mm-hmm. that harvesting bass, killing a bass, has almost become, you know, a sin. Oh, it's sacrilegious. I mean, it's completely, it's like. To, to kill a bass. Yeah, I, I said to when, somebody the other day on another podcast, I said, I said, killing a bass has gone to the level of like kicking puppies and like taking candy away from kids. Like it is so, yeah. like if you kill a bass, like it is such a sin, like it's crazy. And so there is this social, yeah. like almost bad stigma around it. Yeah, the, the pendulum has swung way too far to one side because there's a lot of places where harvesting bass is really something we need to do more of thin out the population so that the ones that are left can grow faster there's more food per fish uh to to thin fish out that's one of the the philosophies i'll call it behind slot length limits okay was the idea that you allow people to keep the fish under the slot Mm -hmm. say 10 to 13 inches or whatever you thin them out that leaves more food for the ones that are in the slot they'll grow a little faster and become quality size fish in in a a a year or so the problem with that is that so few people are keeping the little fish that slot limits almost never work i hear it all the time from anglers why don't i have a slot limit on my lake well, they have one on Lake Fork in Texas. Well, nobody keeps bass in at Lake Fork, period. <laughs> I mean, it's you talk about being a sin to keep a bass. Boy, I try to keep one from Lake Fork. <laughs> the the slot limit is is almost a, a psychological thing mm-hmm. because the harvest is just not there. Now, there are a few places where a slot limit might really work, 
And, and when they were first developed in farm ponds, they work great in farm ponds if you can get people to keep, keep a number of fish. Mm-hmm. But in big reservoirs, the fact that our harvest rates have gone down so much mm-hmm. that the, the, the length limits just don't work like they used to. Um, so the, the whole idea of why is conservation important is, is really become more of a social issue than a biological issue. And I'll give you another, another side of that argument. Mm -hmm. There are people that want to do away with fishing. Yep. The, the PETA. This is animal rights. This is guys, I'm going to preface what he's about to say right now with, this is a very, very slippery slope. We are like, you guys have to understand, and I've brought this up before that one of our biggest challenges as anglers and as hunters and as outdoorsmen is that more people don't agree than do agree. And we are in a slippery slope with this topic right here. We, we are way in the minority. Yes. You know, somebody, somebody says there's uh, I don't know, 60 million people in the U S that fish. Mm-hmm. That means there's 250 million that don't. Yep. And when fish are, in their eyes, fish are being mistreated simply by us fishing for them mm-hmm. and catching them on a hook. And, and the, the whole idea of the, the welfare of those fish becomes a big deal for all of the people that don't fish and look at our sport as being cruel mm-hmm. and, and inhumane. And unfortunately, if it comes to a voting situation, there's a whole lot more of them than there are of us. Mm -hmm. So the more we can show the the general public Mm -hmm. and and the general the general public, when you look at it on the broad scale, the general public doesn't disagree with fishing. They're just fishing. They're ill informed. They're ill informed is the best way to like. I, I was funny. Well, they, they, the the general public doesn't have a real problem with fishing in general. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's it's not a bad deal. Hunting hunting is a little harder to sell, but yeah. fishing is something that most people across you know the 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 general public can agree with. Mm-hmm. So as long as we show that general public that we're trying to take care of the fish, mm-hmm. that we're doing what we can to preserve the quality of the fish yep. and a lot of what we do on the conservation side relates to things like clean water mm-hmm. and healthy fish and, and lakes habitats that are, there it is. I love it. Where those fish live. Love it. Everybody can relate to clean water. Yes. I mean, that's, we gotta have it. Yes. So the more we can do on our side from the conservation standpoint to show that we're, we're working that direction. We're trying to do things not only to help ourselves, yep. but to help the the broader public. We're going to preserve the sport. Yep. And yep. and not have the antis don't don't give them any ammunition yep. that they're going to be able to use to try to shut us down. Yep. I love that. That's that's beautiful. And that's one thing that I preach and preach and preach and talk about and talk about and talk about is that, you know, our our contribution is not just a contribution of a fishing license or the purchase of, um, you know, a piece of fishing equipment that excise taxes on. 
our contribution needs to be even a step above that. We need to be a shining example of what true conservation is. You know, and, and when people talk about that they're, they're conservationist or they're um, environmentalist, we are the ultimate environmentalist. We are the ultimate conservationist as long as people are informed on what that means. And I think that's one thing that I, that I want to see more and more of is, is more people, whether they be tournament anglers or guys who catch and keep fish to eat them or trout fishermen or whatever it is, that we all just take that next step that we need to to really be a shining example of what it really means to be a true conservationist and a true environmentalist. Because at the end of the day, I, it was funny, someone tagged me in Instagram on this and, and they said it makes perfect sense because it was Steve Irwin and Steve Irwin was going on and on and on and he was on this tirade and he was talking about, he's like, you know, my my goal in life is to have as much land and as much clean water and as much environmental space for these animals to live and make it publicly accessible so people can enjoy this land and enjoy these animals and enjoy this clean water. And like, that's what we as bass fishermen should be really, really focused on is, is this love and respect for the beauty that is nature and, and really being an ex- shining example of what it means to be a environmentalist and a, and a conservationist. And so to hear you say that just warms my heart. Like you just don't even understand because I mean, <laughs> that's, that's it. Like that's the idea, you know, that's the idea yeah. of, yeah. of if, if we're going to interact with it, if we're going to put pressure on fisheries, if we are going to catch a fish, if we are going to do it, that is why conservation has to exist. And, and I'm answering my own question here, and you answered it beautifully as well. But like, I, it was almost like a setup for this. Is is just like that is why the conservation has to exist is because we are having an effect on it. And if if we're going to have an effect on it, then we need to do the best that we possibly can do to manage the effect that we're having on it. And and we're here now. You know, a lot of people will be like, "Well, if we just left it alone." No, no, no. For Tens of thousands of years we've been here and we've been jacking with it. And now there's more of us and we have better technology and we have better ability to go and jack with it more. So we have to do a really, really good job of offsetting our messing with it. Well, and that that's where we always have tried to distinguish between preservation and conservation. Mm. Preservation is the don't touch it. Put it in a put it behind a fence, mm-hmm. lock it up, let nature take its course. Mm-hmm. Conservation, as we define it, is wise use. Yes. We want to be able to use the resource for the public good, mm-hmm. but conserve it so that we can enjoy it for the long term mm-hmm. and allow that public use, whether it's fishing or boating or or whatever the, the use may be, or hunting. Uh, and, and so one of the things that, that comes to mind is when a lot of people think about my job, mm-hmm. when they hear about bass, B-A-S-S, conservation, they think about fish care and tournaments. Mm-hmm. That's about that much of my job. Yeah. We we have a much broader program and, and a lot bigger agenda than just the fish care issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's part of it. I work at a lot of tournaments. I make sure that our 
our staff is well versed on how to keep fish healthy and alive to, so that we can release them. Mm-hmm. We work with anglers to help them make sure that they're doing a better job of taking care of the fish in the live well. Mm-hmm. But that's that's only one little component of what we call the bass conservation agenda. We work with state agencies on regulations and fish management mm-hmm. issues across the country. Mm-hmm. We have for for those that are that are not familiar with it, the Bass Nation, mm-hmm. uh, every uh, forty seven states and nine different foreign countries have state or country chapters that are Bass Nation chapters. Each one of those chapters has a state conservation director that does kind of the stuff that I do, but at the state and local level. Now, most of those they're all volunteers. Mm-hmm. But they're the ones that are getting involved in the local access projects, the local fish habitat projects, putting on projects that fight invasive species, uh, working with the the local tournaments, whether it's high school or college or the uh, adult tournaments on on fish care. That's going on at the at the state level mm-hmm. uh, with with those folks. The, the next step up from that is the policy level. What's happening at the legislative level in the state capitals or in Washington, D.C., that affect water quality, that affect uh, farming practices, that affect energy development or, or housing development, whatever, I- anything that impacts our aquatic resources so there's this this broad swath of things that that really it, conservation is all part of mm-hmm. and uh unfortunately a lot of that stuff goes on behind the scenes mm-hmm. people don't see it they don't hear about it um it's not sexy. But it's there. It's not and, sexy. And there's a lot of work that's been going on. And uh, it, it doesn't often get a light shined on it because t- people tend to kind of focus on the tournament aspect. Yep. And yeah. and that's what kind of gets all the, the headlines. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's not sexy, right? That's what, I, that's what I like to say. You know, holding the yeah. big fish up and the classic and, and the pro anglers and the stickers and just all that, right? That's the yeah. sexy part of what we do. That's what everybody – that's the that's the big, you know, the big shiny thing that everybody likes to look at. And, and there's this whole other segment over here that has to go on, that must go on, that is the conservation aspect. It's, it's the policy. It's the <laughs> – you know, the clean water, it's, I mean, it's all that, it's all those things that, 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 that I love to talk about. That's what I, what I like to focus on. And it always makes me angry because I'm just like, you know, I, I you know, the tournaments are cool and all that's cool, but I also want to, I want to put guys like you on the, on the pedestal so that, that it can be heard and that people can understand that there's this whole other aspect that it may not be the sexiest thing, but it's probably one of the most important things that we do. So it, it, go ahead. I'm sure. Sorry. Uh, it just, just to, to to put a bow on what you just said, that, that all falls under the what we call advocacy. Mm-hmm. We've got to get people more involved in speaking up. Yes. The fishing community, unlike hunters, hunting the hunting community, there's people who want to take away your guns. Yeah. Yeah. And so hunters 
and and people in the shooting sports have really gotten together and are really proactive trying to to preserve their sports. Yes. On the fishing side, it tends to be more reactive. Mm. Things have to go south before we get enough people to do something and say something. And a lot of times it's too late. Mm. We need to get more anglers involved up front. Mm. When things are being discussed, uh, we always say we need a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. When there's something being discussed, some management regulation, some rule, yeah. some program that's going on, we got to have fishermen involved Amen. in those discussions Amen. or the bus is going to run us over. Yep. Amen. And I've, I, I have said that I've literally said those exact words that we, we must have a seat at the table. And that's one thing that we don't, I mean, I feel as, I feel as though I don't within the system of which I am, I'm working here in Tennessee and you know what I mean? I've fished all across the country, Oklahoma, Florida, Michigan, you know, Georgia, Alabama, I've gone a little bit of everywhere and I've, I've been lucky enough to go to all these places and fish. And so, you know, but being a resident of Tennessee and, but also being a person who has traveled across the country and loves and something to, you know, to kind of go back on what you said earlier, not just the bass. I love bass, all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want them all to do well. I, I want to have a seat at the table. And, and, you know, one thing, that I think is super important for people to understand is, is having a seat at the table and being heard is not as complicated or as scary as, as people think that it has to be. I mean, you know, I I actually had a guy uh, tag me in a comment on another post and he's saying I was being a Debbie Downer and that blah, blah, blah. But I, but the short of it was I was being a Debbie Downer and that I didn't do anything that I was all talk and no action. And, (laughs) and, I was like, no, you know, I sent seven emails to my congressman. I attended two public fisheries meetings and sat there and asked questions and and pushed back on ideas. I have sent emails to the TWRA and had John on and talked to him. You know, I've promoted Douglas Lake's going to have a regulation change here very soon. And I, I promoted the fact and had John on to promote public comment on that change. You know, those are mm-hmm. the simple things. They're simple, easy things that we can do as anglers to make dramatic changes in the perception of bass fishing, the management of bass fishing, the conservation of bass fishing and the social aspect. And that that's an aspect I'll be honest, Gene, that I never really took into consideration. You've kind of opened my eyes tonight is there is this giant social aspect around bass fishing from all different angles that we can also do a really good job of. If, if we can just, find a common goal to get behind and, and to work towards like hunters with firearms. You know what I mean? That we can make these dramatic differences and it doesn't take much guys like hear me out. When I say this, people listening on podcasts, people watching live, it does not take much to help to make a huge change. And it, it may be just be as simple as an email or a public comment on a regulation change or something like that. And so man, hearing you say that, that makes again. That's a, that just makes me makes me smile. It makes me super happy that just to hear that. I, I often feel like I'm alone on an island, and so to hear another human being say that makes me very very happy. <laughs> well, and and Alex, it may be, it may be as simple as one phone call. Yes, sir. Um, you know, people people do a lot of complaining mm-hmm. about. And of course, with social media, everybody's got a voice. Everybody. But they don't provide 
solutions. Yes. And the way to get to a solution is to start that discussion. You know, um, I I have the maybe kind of a unique position in that I'm I can get in touch with almost any of the fisheries chiefs in any state. They know who I am. I know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them were my colleagues for 30 years when I was a biologist in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them have a uh, an open door or open phone policy, if you want to call it that. Yeah. If there's something going on that you're not happy about, start the discussion with the biologists, with the administrators in, your, in those agencies mm-hmm. to look at that problem and try to figure out what can we do to make things better. Yes. And, you know, with everybody says, well, they never listen. Well, they, you know, there, there's a million excuses, but I guarantee you most of those people that say, well, they never listen have never asked the question. Yep. Yep. And that, and that's one thing, like I, I've been wrong and I'll say that I've been wrong. I've also been right about some things and it's just like, but you know what the main, the thing was is I always asked the question. Like I was just never afraid to go to that person, to send that email, to make that phone call and just go, Hey, this is what I see. Tell me whether I'm right or I'm wrong, but is there something that we can do here together to make a change on what this is? And that was my goal when I reached out to the TWRA in the first place and to get a hold of somebody was simply just to start discussions and hope that I was wrong about everything that I was going to ask them about. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just to learn and to be a sponge. You know, I'm, I'm a former educator, and something I always, always used to tell my kids was be a lifelong learner. Be willing to have your ideas torn down because it's the only way that you're going to be able to build a stronger idea and a stronger opinion and, and be able to learn and to make changes. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. you're so right. I mean, I think people – well, so often, and you, you know, so many people have a voice. There's a lot of haters. It is what it is. I'm used to it at this point. But yeah. you're right. So many people will complain, but nobody will actually just pick up the phone and make a phone call. And if you got to leave yeah. a voicemail, leave a voicemail. Like, send an email. You, or or like you said, attend the meetings. You know, exactly, if yeah. there's public hearings and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it, it's easy to sit back and, and complain about well, why did this regulation or that rule or whatever get put into place? Mm-hmm. But if, and I saw it so many times at at public meetings that I was part of here in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. that we didn't hear from the the anglers until after the rule went into effect. Hmm. We didn't. None of them showed up. Yeah, at the yeah. meetings to to help craft the regulation so that it would be something they could live with. Yeah. Now, yeah. a lot of state agencies are doing, and, and I'll, I'll be very quick to admit, 10, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of the state agencies said, by gosh, we're the scientists and we know best. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just go on over there and keep fishing. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them now are trying to bring in the angler opinion early in that process. Yep. They they want they want the the input of the constituents out there, and and we want to build a team mm-hmm. of biologists and anglers 
and and industry and and uh, all of the stakeholders you know mm-hmm. that that have some that are going to be affected by whatever that that program or that regulation or that project is mm-hmm. uh, we want to get all of them together and get everybody kind of working on the same page and and state agencies are getting a lot better at that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know using social media there's there's uh, a lot of new ways to communicate with people that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago mm-hmm. that I think are kind of opening some of those doors. As anglers, we just got to take advantage of it. When that door opens, we got to walk in. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's where I'm at right now. You know, I, I see a lot of people making a lot of YouTube videos about fishing and I see very few people leading a charge on having a conversation about conservation. And that's what I wanted this podcast to be. It's why I started this live stream. You know, well, I say that I started this live stream because I don't know. I just, I talk a lot. So I thought it would be pretty good to have something to go talk a lot. And then, and then I realized like, you know, one of my passions has always been the conservation aspect of it. And, and I thought I can do something with this and I can make a change and I can start a conversation to get going in a direction. And, and, you know, People want to see change now. I think it's another going to kind of the social aspect. You know, we live in a very instant gratification world and they got to realize that it takes one bite at a time to eat an elephant. And like when you're dealing with a state as big as Tennessee or God forbid, a state as big as Texas, like it takes a lot of moving parts to get things going, but it all starts with a conversation. It all starts sure. with a phone call. It all starts. And, and that's what I love about, you know, what you said, a few minutes ago was like, you know, you didn't hear from people until after the regulation was changed. And that's, you know, why I want to try to get ahead of some of these things. I'm actually having John on guys for everybody that lives in Tennessee. I'm having John on at the end of next month. Cause the end of next month, the public comment, we had him on pre public comment on the Douglas Lake change. And now we're having him on post public comment close and regulation being put in place. And so now we're going to discuss regulation, what it means for anglers and how it's going to affect your life as an angler on the body of water. And like, I think though, but you got to see here, we had that other conversation three months ago and now we're having this next conversation. So you guys can see, I mean, it's taking three, four, six months at a time for these things to change and for these to adjust. So you got to understand the, that these things don't happen instantly, that right. it takes time right. and that you got to let this situation breathe. Uh, government yeah. works very slowly sometimes. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example of one thing that happened to me. The first year that I was fast conservation director, I had just came on, uh, come on from uh, having retired in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and we were in Michigan and Michigan has a, a rule about, foul hooking fish snagging mm-hmm. and the the issue came up with what happens if you're fishing a jerk bait and the fish gets hooked in the top of the head or outside the mouth mm-hmm. does that count mm-hmm. well the way the rule reads or then it did was that fish has to be hooked in the mouth that foul hooked fish have to be released and, and and we all know as anglers that when you're fishing a jerk bait or a crankbait, they get hooked in all kinds of crazy places sometimes. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. and to to my way of thinking, it's because the fish has bad aim. It's not my fault. Yeah. I'm not intentionally trying to snag that fish. It's because the fish misses. Yeah. Uh, but it's close enough to get hooked. So 
to my to my thinking, it 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 ought to count to be able to keep that fish. Mm-hmm. But the way the rule read, it wouldn't. Well, my boss at the time came up to me and tapped me on the chest and said, "We've got to get this changed." And I said, "Yes, sir. We're in discussions with Michigan DNR right now to see what we can do to 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 come up with some solution that that everybody can live with." And, mm-hmm. And he said, will it happen by the time the tournament starts next Thursday? And I said, well, uh, no. Typically, regulation changes take a year or more in almost every state. I think it's going to take a while to get this pushed through. But, you know, like you were saying, instant gratification. He He's kind of used to that corporate world that's that like, you know, Fix do it. it. Do it now. And yeah. government doesn't doesn't work that way. No, it does not. Um, and, and you know the other the other side of this too is like we mentioned earlier that that fishing uh, the anglers are kind of in the minority. There's a lot of other moving parts, a lot of other stakeholders. When we talk about managing bass populations or regulating whatever it is manipulating the environment to make fishing better mm-hmm. it potentially affects somebody else maybe it's a marina owner yep. maybe it's lakeside homeowners maybe it's uh, the people that draw water out of that lake for drinking water mm-hmm. you know the lakes we fish in weren't built for fishing yeah, yeah. they were built for something else exactly tva built the, the system for flood control and power generation yep. and you know you go down the list and recreation uh, that fishing is part of is way down there yeah um and so a lot of those other uh reasons that they they built those lakes take precedent over what we would like to do as fish managers um we we would love to be able to regulate water levels and have ideal control over, you know, water levels at different times of the year. We would love to be able to, to manage aquatic vegetation at just the right level that we need to, we don't have too much. We have just enough to provide better habitat, but somebody else is kind of dealing the cards. And a lot of times the hand that we're dealt is not the best one. Uh, So we have to do what we can. With, yeah. with the cards we've got. Yeah, I heard I heard it best said, it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, he said there are no solutions, only compromises. And oftentimes that's the truth in these situations. Like you said, you know, one thing is going to affect somebody else. And even within fishing, you know, let's say that we overstock bass. It could affect the striper population or something to that effect. You know, there's these, like you were talking about the sauger earlier that displaced mm-hmm. the bass, you know, when we go and we think, oh, we've done this really good thing, it may not be the best thing that we've done, but like, but there's a compromise and there's a solution, and, and it just takes time to figure these things out and just keep building upon building upon building. And you know, one thing I do want to mention is is something kind of going back to the government side of it. The government does work slow. I used to work for the government. They work very slow, um, and especially state and local governments. They the federal government probably works the slowest, but then when you go to the state and the local level, you know, you think you want it to work fast too. Well, they work just as slow as the, the federal government does oftentimes. And one thing mm-hmm. I heard um, 
was listening to uh, Cal's Week in Review, which is part of the Meat Eater podcast crew, and he and he does like a weekly review about different things within conservation, both fishing, hunting, you know, public lands, waters, all those kinds of things. And he was talking about that there was a bill that had been passed through the Congress and was making its way to the Senate, and then they the the they had the elections, and it reset the whole cycle. The bill's gone. Right. The bill has to start right. completely over and go through the system all over again. And so that's like another thing to keep in mind is like that's just part of it, you know. And so we right. it can't just be I advocated. It has to be we are advocating and will continue to advocate. It right. Can, it can't, and and yeah, yeah, that's at the state level. That's a little faster. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's bills that have been in Congress for six or eight years mm-hmm. before they get passed because. At the end of every year, you bring in a new Congress, mm-hmm. and everything that was the year before basically goes away, and you got to start over, and they have to be reintroduced, and and you got new senators, new representatives, mm-hmm. so you got to make new deals, you got to have get everybody on board again. Um, you know, maybe the people that were supporting you might not have gotten reelected, yeah, and now mm-hmm. you got a whole new crew of folks you got to work with, or. Yeah. Maybe you had support from one party and not the other. Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. it's a, a crazy system, but it's it's what we've got to deal with. Now, the good thing from a bass fishing standpoint is that very little of the things that affect bass fishing mm-hmm. happen at the federal level. Mm-hmm. That's almost all done at the state level mm-hmm. where, where we potentially have more influence. If we get organized and we and we work with the system, mm-hmm. uh, so the the state fish and wildlife agencies are the ones that state by state that really manage the bass fisheries. Now the federal policy kind of has a lot of those big picture things like you know clean water and yeah. uh, the farm bill and and some of those kind of things. But day to day fishery management happens at the state level, mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the things that that really kind of works in our favor mm-hmm. is that we've got, we've got that uh, a little closer to home yeah. uh, that we yeah. can work with. Yeah. You can actually call yeah. those people like, you know, I, I've had conversations with the people who work at the TWRA. I mean, it's very simple. I mean, I sent them a message on Instagram and they got back to me immediately. Like they are active on social. They're active at their phones. They respond to emails. Like understand that if you haven't reached out to your state fish and game agency, try it. Just see what happens. I mean, I don't know where everybody lives. You know, I got a people that are literally from all over, all, not, not just this country, but the world as well. There's people in Australia that watch this and all kinds of stuff, which is cool. But like if, if you live in, in Ohio or Texas or Minnesota or wherever it is, just send an email or a message and just be like, hey, who can I get in contact with? I have some concerns and I just want to talk out through some of these concerns with a biologist or, you know, somebody. And I think you would be amazed the response that you'll get back. It's They're very, very active and they're very willing to talk. And if you come to the classic this year, the TWRA is going to be there. They're going to have a booth and you can walk mm-hmm. in and, and John is going to be there, John Hammond. So that's somebody's face that you'll recognize if you're here in Tennessee from my podcast, if you're listening or watching. But you can walk up and just start up a conversation. Like, I think it's going to another social issue with that that I see is like people see those guys in green jackets and they think, oh no, 
when like 90% of the internet, 99% of the interactions of those guys in those green jackets are awesome interactions. And I, and I can remember one time, this was, I don't know, 10 years ago, probably maybe not that long ago. I was at the boat ramp and here come a guy in a TWA truck and he, he comes bibbity bopping out. It's his older man. And uh, I think, oh gosh, he's going to ask for a fishing license and all this stuff. No, no, no. He was a biologist and he wanted to ask about my fishing day. And I ended up standing in a parking lot in Norris Lake for two and a half hours just <laughs> talking. I mean, we had the greatest conversation ever. I mean, you know, my wife's calling me like, are you dead? And I'm like, no, I'm alive. I'm great. Like I'm having a conversation with this awesome human being. And um, I believe his name was Jim. And so, like, you know, just understand it's as simple as a conversation. And and, and, and a lot of those contacts are on agency websites. Yep. Easy. You know, I, I would say the, the the best place to go is your local biologist first. Mm-hmm. You can get, get a contact information for, you know, if you've got a concern about a particular lake, is find out who the biologist is that is responsible for managing that lake and start there. Mm-hmm. And 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 develop a relationship with that guy or gal that's that's in that position mm-hmm. because that I, I think you'll find in in most cases they they will be receptive they <laughs> you know I, I i know i hear people complain about how oh all they're worried about is money and they're you know the state doesn't really care well when you think about it there's no reason for the state fish and game agency to want fishing to be bad. <laughs> no kidding. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no kidding. They, they operate off of the sale of fishing licenses and excise taxes on tackle equipment and yeah. motorboat fuels. Yeah. They want people fishing and they want people to be happy and continue to be fishing. Yep. So there's there's no reason for them to to want to screw up your fishing yeah. on purpose. Yeah. I uh, agree with that. Again, you know, like we've said several times. They, they got a lot of different stakeholders. You know, you, you take any lake in the country and it's not just a bass lake. It's yep. there's other stuff out there that people want to fish for. Mm-hmm. And the state biologist, that part of their job is to try to, uh, like you said earlier, you know, compromise. Let's come up with with plans that can. That can be something that will benefit as many of our constituents as possible absolutely and bass anglers being one one part of that absolutely all right so that's awesome that was good like we went down a big rabbit hole there and like stayed on it and that was fantastic so i I got another question for you so this is maybe this is another myth i don't know if it's a myth it's just these are statements that i see right these are things that i see a lot of people talk about on the internet and and I really didn't know the answer or maybe don't know the answer well enough to, to be a part of the conversation. So I want to kind of educate myself on it a little bit. Delayed mortality is a thing that happens in bass. Um, delayed yep. mortality often is associated with catch and release and, and or catch, you know, whale weigh in release. Right. And delayed mortality can be affected by several different factors, whether it's water temperature, dissolved oxygen content, um, just the treatment of the fish while they're in your possession, those different kinds of things. But like when we talk about delayed mortality, what – so I actually I, I pulled a statement off of his Bassmaster's website, and let me find it real quick. It said Bassmaster said – 
that you guys see less than 5% mortality at release. But then there's also a percentage of delay mortality that happens. Of that 5% or of the, of I guess the 95% that are released, how many do you think are dying after the fact? And in the dying process, not all of them are going to float to the top, correct? Like some of them are going to sink and we may just not see dead bass because one thing I always hear people say is it's like, well, if there was that many dead bass, they'd be floating everywhere. Well, that's not exactly always true. So can you kind of just go into that topic? Okay. Boy, how much time you got? Oh, Uh, listen, (laughs) as long as you want to go, Gene, I'm here with you, brother. This is what, this is what I kind of built my career on back in the nineties was mortality studies. Awesome. And I'm excited. Uh Oh, what just happened? I'm here. Are you here? Okay. Are we back? Yeah, you're good. I'm, I'm super excited for this. So go on. <laughs> okay. Um, there have been studies related to, to bass tournament mortality going back to the Mm seventies and every 10 years seems like they would come back around a big slug of them done in the eighties, bunch in the nineties, some more in the two thousands. And for the most part, they have all come up with pretty much the same conclusions that yes, a certain percentage of bass will die as a result of bass tournaments. Uh, I think you and John discussed this, the water temperature is the most important factor. Yes. In the live well, oxygen content can be a almost as big a factor. Mm-hmm. So, there's there's two components to to mortality though from a tournament standpoint is mm-hmm. what happens in the live well what the angler does mm-hmm. and then what happens at weigh in mm. and and you got to have them both uh, or or bad things can happen if 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 the anglers do a good job and the tournament directors do a good job then your delayed mortality is going to be typically less until you hit a certain threshold water temperature wise. Mm. Uh, and, and at some point, some of the latest research shows that when water temperatures get over about 87 degrees, that two or three out of every five bass are probably going to die hmm. from a weigh-in. Most of our tournaments the bulk of our tournaments across the country, Mm -hmm. water temperatures don't get that high. Mm -hmm. We have tournaments in the spring. We have them in the fall. Some people fish all winter Mm -hmm. if the water's not hard. Mm -hmm. If you average the mortality all across the year, it averages about 25 to 28% Mm -hmm. of the bass that are caught in tournaments will will die. Mm -hmm. I like to kind of turn that around and say, that means 75% of them live to be caught again. Good way to look at it. (laughs) Okay. Think think back to that PETA discussion we had earlier. That's right. 
Let's not yeah. let's not focus on the mortality. Let's focus on the survival. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to improve survival? Mm -hmm. We know that uh, holding tournaments in in cooler water helps. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, fewer fish in a live well will help. Uh, that kind of relates to that oxygen use thing. Mm -hmm. um, having good procedures and your weigh-in mm -hmm. will help uh, maximize that survival. Mm -hmm. uh, using release boats, you know, all of those things, they're, they're just a whole suite of things that can make a difference uh, in in good having a, what I call a fish-friendly tournament. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, think back to what I said earlier about the fact that the, the studies say at Sam Rayburn said that, you know, a lake that has hundreds and hundreds of tournaments a year, they're really not having a big impact on the bass population. Mm -hmm. Yes, individual bass die at each of those tournaments. Mm -hmm. Some, maybe Maybe it's a very small percentage in the spring when the water's cold. Uh, the delayed mortality may be zero. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be 5%. It may be very low. Mm -hmm. uh, you hold that same tournament in August, that's a different story. Yeah. You're going to have yeah. a, a, a much higher chance of fish dying. But if you average that out over the whole year, it's 25 to 28%. Mm -hmm. And that amount of mortality is not going to impact the health of that bass population in the long run. Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to what I said about this being a social problem as a little more so than a biological problem. Mm -hmm. We don't want a bunch of dead bass floating up around the boat ramp. Mm -hmm. or the marina mm -hmm. or wherever the weigh-ins are held mm -hmm. because of the perception that all the other anglers and the local public, the, the non-tournament anglers, the, the marina owners, they assume that these tournaments are killing all the fish, mm -hmm. whether, whether it's really going on or not, that's the perception. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have been on a, crusade for 20 plus years now preaching the preaching the gospel of fish care yes to try to encourage anglers and tournament directors to do the best they can to follow the recommended procedures that we have in in that keeping bass alive book mm -hmm. uh, to to try to maximize the survival of those fish that are released after tournaments. Mm -hmm. Now, the obvious question that we get, and, and, and I'll say BASS gets a, a ton of criticism. Why don't we switch to catch, weigh, and release like Major League Fishing? Mm -hmm. One, we have a completely bus different business model. Even Major League Fishing only has one circuit that does catch, weigh, and release. Yes. The BPT Tour does catch, weigh, and release. All of the other MLF circuits weigh five just like we do. Yeah. So they kind of have a, a, a dual business model. Mm -hmm. um, the BPT is built for television. Mm -hmm. 
and and to build up the the excitement of the catch and that sort of thing. Our business model, at typically at BASS events, is the sponsors that help support our tournaments. They want people to show up at the weigh-in. Mm-hmm. They want and people show up at a weigh-in to see fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the on the stage. Yeah. And and to see their uh, the the guys that they're fans of, uh, you know who wins and and who doesn't, but they they want to see fish, and we've seen that over and over. That when we have if we have weigh-ins where where we don't have very many fish to show, we don't get the fans, and then the sponsors, you know, uh, and everybody says, well, then it's all about money. Well. Bass and Major League Fishing are businesses. They're for-profit businesses. That's yeah. kind of the, that's point. the way the world works. <laughs> yeah. But again, back to what you mentioned about our release rates, uh, I look back at at the the release rates from tournaments for going back for t- over ten years, and we release ninety plus percent of the bass that are weighed in in BASS events, whether it's high school, college, bass nation opens or elites. Mm -hmm. Now we know that a certain percentage of those fish probably don't survive, but in the grand scheme of things, we don't think that we or the other tournaments that are fishing those lakes are having a big detrimental impact to the fishery. And we kind of take our lead on that from the state fish and wildlife agencies. Those they're the ones that are out there managing those populations, doing the surveys, doing the studies. If a state came to us and said, "We've got to change the way we do bass tournaments," mm-hmm. or "We're going to cut out bass tournaments," or "We're going to limit the number of bass tournaments," whatever. Mm-hmm based on the science that they're collecting, the data they're collecting, that's one thing. But we don't hear that from any state. Mm -hmm. And so the the format that we've got now, we feel pretty comfortable with that we're not having a big impact on the bass populations. um, And we're providing that service to the anglers, to the fans, Mm -hmm. people that, that enjoy either competing in the tournaments or watching the tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, the whole concept of would it be better if every tournament everywhere went to the catch, catch, weigh, and release type format? Maybe, maybe not. Think back earlier in this conversation, I made the comment about how slot limits maybe don't, work so well because we don't have enough harvest of of fish. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, there's some situations where the numbers of bass that are dying as a result of bass tournaments might actually be a good thing in terms of thinning the population just a little bit mm-hmm. to kind of make up for the fact that nobody's keeping them to take them home to eat them. And there's a potential that 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 would actually help improve growth rates, you know, thin the population out a little bit. Yeah. We, we've had tournaments on places where the, the lakes were almost stunted. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I know one one of the places we used well they're in Tennessee. Think about it, Carroll County, thousand acre recreation lake, mm-hmm. where we've had the high school championship for many years, mm-hmm. or the junior, excuse me, the junior uh, bass uh, championship. Mm-hmm. It is full of little bass about this big. Yeah, <clears throat> that's one of those lakes where it, it wouldn't be a bad thing to remove a lot of those fish. Now, we're not going to have a big fish fry after a VASS event. <laughs> I, I don't see that in our future. Kind of uh, kind of goes against the I mean, let's be honest, though, Gene, that might be pretty cool. I mean, like, I'd, I'd like to stand around <laughs> and eat some fish with you boys, but go ahead. Hey, I'm hey, sorry. Ray, Ray, Ray Scott's, you know, rolling over in his grave. Yeah. I mean, but, but it, you know, but, but for the health of that lake, the best thing that, that we could do would be to harvest a lot of those little bass, kill some fish, and 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 take them home. And yeah. and so we we have tried to encourage the the concept that in fishermen came up with years ago called selective harvest. Yes, there are times when it's great to catch and release, but there's also times when it's not a bad thing to keep fish and take yes. them home. Yes, or or in the case of the tournament mortality. It's just a component of that overall fish mortality that uh, that's not really going to harm the bass populations. Yeah. So it's again, it 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 all goes back really more to the social side of things than the biological side. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, the perception that people have when when you got a bunch of when you have dead fish floating up around the lake. Yeah. Um, I I think back in. There was a tournament on Grand Lake in 1995 in July, 105 degrees, but boy, they caught them. I mean, it was like 20-pound bag after 20-pound bag. Yeah. And the the company that was running that tournament, an organization that, that no longer exists, they went out of business, but they crammed so many fish in their release boat that I, I think there was more fish than water. Oh, and when they got out there to release those fish, within a matter of 30, 45 minutes, there's dead fish floating up everywhere. Yeah. CNN sent a helicopter to video the dead fish floating around Grand Lake. The next morning, I got a call from the governor because dead fish floating up on the shoreline of very influential people that have high dollar property on Grand Lake know the governor. Yeah. And they said, we got to do something about these bass tournaments. Hmm. And the Grand River Dam Authority, who who operates Grand Lake, threatened to basically stop having tournaments. Wow. If something wow. wasn't done. Wow. Okay. We as biologists were like, okay. These these few hundred bass that died as a result of this tournament are not in the in the big scheme of things not hurting Grand Lake, mm-hmm. but the fact that they were so visible, so obvious, it became this big social thing, and it gave people ammunition to say, "Let's get rid of these darn tournaments." Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like tournaments because they're noisy, because they don't want to be. You know, there's too many boats. They go too fast. There's all kinds of arguments. Yes. 
Well, here, here's the thing of where they can they can go to the the powers that be and say, look, we we need to get rid of these tournaments, and here's why. And it took a lot of negotiating over the course of you know several weeks to mm-hmm. to kind of calm things down and uh, come up with a, a compromise that that we thought would work. And and what they what they wound up doing was the Grand River Dam Authority said, okay, we're not going to issue permits for tournaments in July and August when it's the hottest because we don't want this kind of thing to happen again. Mm-hmm. They understood the biology that it's not really hurting the lake, but they didn't want that kind of negative publicity. They didn't want to have to deal with the irate homeowners calling them. Yeah, um, They changed the rules eventually to uh, if, if the water temperatures were a certain degree, you could only have a three fish limit. And I mean, they, they came up with some ideas that still allowed tournaments to go on, but to protect the resource. Yeah. Conservation minded ideas mm-hmm. instead yeah. of just a total ban. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to go there. Yeah. And so yeah. we, we worked with them and came up with some ideas that, that have worked now for 20 plus years. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, that's that's uh, it makes sense, right? And it makes sense. I mean, it, so one one concern I think that I have, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong in thinking this. So, what you guys do at Bass is obviously a very professional level, well funded, you know, way of going about running a tournament. I mean, obviously, it's. I mean, it's the big show, right? You know, you guys, you right. guys are. It's the it's the big show. It's the NFL, the MLB of bass fishing. That's what bass is, and you know, MLF respectively is 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 the same thing, just in a very different fashion in the way that they do the BPT specifically. So, one concern that I have is in, in, in things that I see is you know when bass comes to so let's say you guys are coming to classics, coming to Fort Loudon, right, and or the Tennessee River, wherever, you, however they're you know selling that. There's going to be probably 50 subsequent tournaments that come there because they want to play on the same playing field as the big boys. And that's and mm-hmm. uh, why not, you know? And so I'm I'm going to see an increase of fishing pressure on these lakes from people all, from all over the country, whether it be BFL, sure. whether it be opens, whether it be high school, middle school, hell, even elementary school now, Gene. It's crazy. There's elementary school fishing teams. I don't even know how that works. But – we're going to see this massive fishing pressure and, you know, 50 to 52 tournaments. I mean, like literally a tournament for every weekend day that there is, there's going to be tournaments out there, hundred, 200 boats. And I always kind of run this math in my head. Let's say that we have a hundred boats and they each catch a five fish limit over 52 weeks. That's 26,000 fish. Is there any thought process or is there any logic in my logical brain it makes me think we might be making just a little bit of an extra dent on that specific body of water or an extra dent on some of these bodies of water that get just that extra amount of fishing pressure because either the big boys have showed up and had a tournament there or it's just a world-renowned fishery is there any concern that i should have or other anglers should have that that much extra fishing pressure might go above and beyond that, you know, 28% and may bump us into that 40, 50% even that we have to start worrying about it. At this point, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. The, okay. 
52 weeks a year, eight, 10 weeks out of that are the worst time. Mm -hmm. Those other weeks, water temperatures are cooler. Survival is much less. Mm -hmm. Again, we're talking about that average. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be 60% in the summertime, but it might be 5% in the spring and fall. Mm. So you've got a lot of those events are going to be in times of the year simply because you can only have so many tournaments on on a body of water. It, it, it almost self-regulates to some extent. Mm. Uh, but even recreational anglers, you know, when, when bass when bass comes out with their top 100 list, you know, those lakes that get listed as the top one or two or three or five or whatever, uh, the whole the whole planet seems to want to fish there the next year. Yeah. But uh, from a tournament standpoint, it, it tends to be self-regulating. It, it may be a big deal next year you know, after the Classic. Mm-hmm. But it's going to move on to whatever's next the next year. Mm-hmm. And, and those uh, what we've seen typically with tournament organizations around the country is they kind of try to look at other schedules and try to figure out, especially if it's a bigger outfits that we don't want to be on top of another hundred boat tournament, or we don't want to fish right behind one that's already been there. And so they, they will try to, to regulate themselves a little bit and, and maybe they'll go to a different lake mm-hmm. for, uh, for that weekend or the, you know, and, and kind of space things out. But I, I think in the grand scheme of things, you're, you take your you take your information from TWRA in this case mm-hmm. and look at what they're seeing in terms of their survey results. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't don't trust the government <laughs> providing <laughs> providing good information, but I, I can tell you that that uh, almost every state agency has, come a long, long way in terms of their sampling protocols Mm -hmm. and the reliability of the data that they generate, that they can, they can track things. And a lot of them are, are now putting in uh, reporting systems where tournaments can send in results Mm -hmm. so that they can use that as more data. That's awesome. Uh, Not only, not only what the, the electrofishing surveys show, but they can, they can track tournament results and mm-hmm. and see if there's some trends up or down or sideways, whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. It just gives mm-hmm. them, it gives the biologist more information to go on in, in managing those fisheries. Mm-hmm. So it may you may see a at least a short term increase in the 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 pressure and the number of tournaments. The oh gosh, I I think I, I go to Lake St. Clair every year, smallmouth fishing and Insane. The, Insane. the year after it was listed number one uh, lake in the country, this yeah. has been, I don't know, 10 years ago. Golly, the next year, every parking place, people parked on the sidewalk. They were, I mean, everywhere. And there's trailers from all over the country. Yep. Um, you know, and and it it definitely, the the fish behavior, again, we, we struggle to catch fish as many fish that year mm-hmm. next year it bounced right back people went somewhere else yeah uh, you know it, and and so i think you can kind of think that same thing might happen uh you know when the classic comes along or when a 
uh, when a lake really blows up and it has, you know, notoriety, um, you think about what Chickamauga has done over the past several years and how, how much pressure it's, it's had to, to, to handle. Um, but I, I would think that the, the survey work that the biologists are doing is, is going to keep, keep an eye on that to, to decide whether or not there needs to be some, some other form of regulation or, uh, restrictions. Um, you know, the only thing that, that we, from a, from a, tournament organization and i've thought about this even before i started working for bass Mm -hmm. that if you're going to try to restrict fishing Mm -hmm. tournament organizations the same kind of restrictions need to apply to the general public just because 50 guys get together and decide to go fishing on the same day and call it a tournament if those same 50 guys just show up at the boat ramp and go fishing, nobody seems to make a big deal out of that. But mm-hmm. if you label it as a tournament, all of a sudden there needs to be more restrictions and regulations on that group. And to me, that's a little bit inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. That if if the data shows that there needs to be some sort of restrictions, I think it needs to be across the board that affects all anglers equally mm-hmm. and, and doesn't single out the guys that, that want to pursue the sport the way they want to do it. And, and, and by that, I mean, having tournaments, mm-hmm. if, if people want to have that want to just go out and fun fish mm-hmm. and don't, don't have that competitive instinct or whatever, mm-hmm. they ought to have to follow the same rules. Mm. And, uh, and so, when it when it comes to if there is a need to to have some more restrictions, it, to my mind, it needs to be more across the board to where everybody has to play by the same rules. Agreed. Agreed. I get that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think two things. I think I think the first thing is that people have to realize that these lakes and and the proliferation of bass and the management practices that are going on nowadays, we, if, if it stays the way that it is, we could never fish these lakes out of fish. Like, like it's impossible. As long as the regulations are in place and as long as conservation goes on, like it is, we could never fish these lakes out. And, you know, it would have to be one of those like wild west scenarios. Like it was, you know, a hundred years ago. And I actually read an article from meat eaters talking about that. We almost fished black bass to extinction in, you know, a hundred years ago, but it was because there was no regulation. There was no conservation. There was no, there was no reactive or even proactive uh, steps to conserve the the fishery. Now we're doing such a good job of that. that There's no way that we could fish these fisheries out. I think, but what people do have to realize is that whether it be tournament pressure recreational pressure, whatever it is, these basses behaviors may change. And that's where we're seeing the biggest change in, in, in what's going on is this bass behavior change. Chickamauga being a great example. The place keeps pumping them out. I mean, it keeps pumping out the big ones and it will continue to pump out the big ones. Are we seeing the big fish like we were five, six, seven years ago consistently? Not really. 
I don't think that has to do with the fact that they're dead. I think it has to fact that the do with their behaviors completely changed. And my buddy's a live bait fishing guide on Chickamauga. And I can promise you, you want to just like have your mind blown, go watch him live scope these fish and throw a jerk bait in an Alabama rig and a Ned rig right past their face. And they will not touch anything. You throw a live gizzard shad in there and they just smash it. And it's because these fish have been pressured so much and had so much just pings and bings and clicks and clacks and whacks and just all these different sounds and things presented to them that they've wised up instinctually. They've wised up to the pressure. And I think for me, one thing that I am, that I think is the biggest concern that we have to have, and this kind of goes to you, if we're going to regulate, let's regulate everybody kind of deal is we need to not so much be attacking BASS or MLF or any tournament organization, but we need to be really looking at these cities and these municipalities that are allowing just exuberant amounts of pressure to be put on the lake in many different ways. And I think that's where my concern kind of lies is like you look at Watts Bar, for example, is a great example. Watts Bar is just not healthy right now, Gene. I don't know why it isn't. It's just not a super healthy lake. Like uh, something's gone on. And the only anecdotal correlation that I can make is it's Spring City and Kingston have treated Watts Bar like it's just never going, like it can just keep on keeping on. And like they've had tournament after tournament after tournament. And I mean, it's been Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I mean, just in these big, you know, 450 boat high school tournament was down there. And it's just like, I feel as though, you know, there may not be a giant drop because of bass mortality, but just the sheer fishing pressure and the effect that all that fishing pressure from both a tournament standpoint and a recreational standpoint and just just this like almost whoring out of the lake has changed the way that these bass are functioning in life. And I think that as anglers, that's where we can have the biggest concern and the biggest impact, kind of going back to that conversation we had earlier of like really having a conversation with these people who don't understand bass fishing at all. Like that's what I've learned very quickly is like these people who are in control of these city councils and are making the decisions to bring in a 450 boat high school tournament just because they see the positive economic impact have never been on a boat or casted a rod in their whole entire life. And so it may just be a conversation to be had to be like, hey, maybe two 400-boat tournaments out of two different ramps on one lake on any given Saturday or Sunday might not be the best idea. Let's space this out. And what you said, let's do a better job of spacing these tournaments out, communicating with each other, and making sure that we're not putting an exuberant amount of pressure on any given body of water from six different ramps all over the lake. Because that was Chickamauga's problem for a while is like you would go to Chick, Dayton would have a 200-boat tournament, Sail Creek would have a, as many boats as they could get in that little ramp, Possum Creek would have as many boats as they could get in that little ramp, you'd go down to Chester Frost, there'd be another 150-200-boat tournament, you go down to the dam, there's another 200-boat tournament, there's 800 boats on the lake, plus all the recreational guys, and then just people out there skiing and waterboarding and whatever else. And it's like you can't you can't sit back with a logical brain and go, those fish might not like all that. Like they may literally get up and move from places. They may change their habits. We may literally as humans affect the way that they live their lives. And then we as anglers are seeing that on the back end and going, 
tournament bad, keeping fish bad. You know, we're like trying to find a blame and not seeing the big picture of just total overall pressure. Right. I, I think some of that may if, may be self-regulating. Yeah. If the fishing is poor, mm-hmm. uh, take Kentucky Lake, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, when the when the Asian carp thing really blew up and, and the bass fishing got very tough, mm-hmm. the tournaments went away. Mm-hmm. Now they're coming back. And I, I think some of that will, will regulate itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, organizations like bass or, or major league fishing or any any tournament organization, if they want to go to a particular lake, typically they want to go somewhere where their contestants are going to catch fish. Yeah. Uh, it it makes it makes for a, a better experience for the anglers, for the fans, everybody if there's if there's fish involved. So if the fishing gets tough, the the organizations are are naturally going to say, well, let's go to a different lake next year or the year after that or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think some of that will will kind of help alleviate some of that that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right in that that the the fish behavior with with that kind of continuous pressure is going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there's uh, you may or may not really have that big an impact on the bass population, but the behavior of those fish can change enough to where the the catching is being impacted and ultimately the tournament groups are going to say we we don't want to go here anymore because this lake's just not what it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i think some of the things that we see in in you know like you mentioned the 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 fishing with live gizzard shad i <laughs> i i heard uh, scott martin talking about okeechobee the other day and and uh the fact that he he's he is absolutely convinced that there are subpopulations of bass within Okeechobee that you can catch on a lure, but there's other parts of that population that you will never catch on a lure. Mm-hmm. But you put mm-hmm. a big shiner out there in front of them, and that's a different deal. Yep. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, it's it's a it's a behavior thing. It's a you know some of it is learned. Yeah. Some of it is. Uh, is inherited there's there's some evidence now that that there are fish that can pass on those smart genes if you want to call it that from generation to generation where where they are not as susceptible to being caught by anglers uh they're they're a little smarter or more wary or whatever you want to call it yeah Um, and so that that all kind of plays into this um you know to to your point about about watts bar and, and the health of the lake Again, I I didn't look up to see what any of the the uh, survey work shows uh, on Watts Bar, but you know you can think about a lot of the. I mean, Pickwick's not fishing like it was, and I've got a one of my best friends lives on Pickwick, and the floods that have gone through the Tennessee Valley in the last several years mm-hmm. at some very inopportune times from a from a bass health uh, population health standpoint mm-hmm. you know those kind of things that unfortunately we have no control over mother nature's you know throwing some some bad stuff at us mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. those kind of things can have a huge impact on the the fish population and the the quality of the fishing where the fish live mm-hmm. 
where the vegetation is or used to be, and now it's not. Um, it, it can move the forage around. There's just a, a gazillion things that can go on that are affecting that. And then you add on top of that fishing pressure, and there's there's a lot of mounting evidence that that fish do react to fishing pressure. Now, I, you know, I always hear about people. Uh, the The latest thing is well. You know, when when somebody approaches uh, fish with forward-facing sonar, all of a sudden those fish are running from them or swimming uh, away from them. They're trying to get away. Yeah. Um, they probably were doing that before. Yeah. You know, they they're probably reacting to the boat and the trolling motor. Yeah. When you think yeah. about all the senses that a bass has, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they're hearing or feeling the the pulse of the sonar, which there's a that's a whole different animal to to discuss why they really can't even hear it um, because the frequencies are way above their frequency of hearing range, but they can sense that that boat's there, yes, and that trolling motor prop is spinning, yeah, and the the boat's slapping against the waves or whatever, and if that happens over and over and over and over because of all this fishing pressure, those fish you know kind of a survival mechanism um basically all bass do is eat and reproduce yep and and so their their other big thing they don't want to happen is they don't want to get eaten yeah and so yeah. from from the time they're this big they learn to avoid certain things and so when you put a gazillion boats on the water and have all those trolling motor props spinning and those outboards going and those lures coming by them they they, they learn and uh, there, there's going to be behavior differences that will, um, unfortunately, from us as anglers, mm-hmm. it's it's going to be a lot harder to figure out. Well, how do we how do we get around those things that they're learning? How do we come back with the next best thing, the next biggest thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you think about the A rig. How, gosh, when when the A rigs came out, you could just seine a lake with them, a seine like, yeah. And, you know, it ain't that way anymore. Nope. Um, red, red rattle traps at Sam Rayburn, yeah. you know, 10 bazillion red rattle traps get drugged through the water. At I mean, some they point, created they say, a whole color, Rayburn red, just for that. Rayburn red, that's right. <laughs> I ain't going to eat one of those things anymore. Yeah. You know, especially if they have a bad experience with one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they do have a memory. Yep. And, and especially with bad experiences, those memories can stick around a long time. Yeah. So that whole, the whole field of fish behavior is, is something that, you know, you've got an animal's brain is that big. Yeah. And yet we, so we, we know so little about what they do and how they do it and why they do it. Yeah. Um, that it, it makes it very difficult for us to, to try to, incorporate that into any kind of management scheme mm-hmm. uh it's just it's it's one of the puzzles that we're still having to work out i love it i love it well gene listen we've been going for two hours and i don't i don't i want to respect your time and i want to uh thank you so much for reaching out to me and wanting to come on my podcast and and i'm gonna go ahead and tell you here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to go ahead and get you scheduled out when you can come on again, because this was one of 
probably my favorite and most insightful podcast that I've done. And I appreciate your knowledge and I appreciate you wanting to come on here and share it with me. And I think next time you come on, we're going to dive into all kinds of other stuff like, you know, habitat and grass and just all kinds of other stuff. Cause I, I got a feeling that you're, that you're, that you just got a lot going on in the brain. And so we can just get into a lot. So I'm, I appreciate you very, very Thank much. You. I, I, I just, well, I really do. I, you know, I think the, the, the one thing that, that I hope that I can bring is a little broader perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the, the job that I've got now, I get to see what's going on all over the country. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you've got, you've got listeners, viewers that, mm-hmm. that are all over. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's certainly some opportunities there to, to try to answer some questions or point out some things that are going on in, in other, other States. And, uh, that, you know, I, like you said earlier, we, we need to shine more light on the conservation aspects. Yes. And, and that's, that's very much what I want to try to do. And, uh, I will gladly be on, uh, as many or as, as often as you want to have me. All right, Gene. Well, I appreciate you because I'm right there with you. That's me. That's what I want to do. I want to, I have a feeling that, uh, we're going to, we're going to, be uh we're gonna grow a really good relationship because i'm right there with you this is what i want this is the you and john and and the more people that i can get on to have these conversations with these are the people i want to surround myself with because you're massive sources of knowledge you've got more experience than i do and i've always said it's not what you know it's who you know and now that i know (laughs) you i feel like i know a really good resource that can answer some 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 questions that i have so Gene, again, I appreciate you very much, sir. For everybody listening, you guys are awesome. Appreciate you guys for clicking on this, listening, watching with us tonight. And as always, you guys are sweet, and we will see you next week. Bye.